What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Andy Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. So I'm here with Steph Smith, the one and only. How's it going, Steph? Things are good. How are you? Great. You are a very multi-talented person. You run trends.co, which is, I guess, kind of... It's my favorite part of the Hustle newsletter, which was acquired by HubSpot last year. Uh, it's one of the best newsletters in existence. You guys have, I think, 15,000 plus subscribers. It's paid. It's really awesome. You also have a ton of personal projects that you've worked on over the years, including eBooks, and you wrote a book called Doing Content Right. And you also have the project that you're here for today, which is a newish podcast that you started called shit they don't teach you in schools. Is that right? Shit you don't learn in school. Yes, shit you don't learn in school. That's right. Love it. With a little asterisk and the I and shit. <laughs> so, no, so nobody knows what that word means. No swearing here. <laughs> no swearing here whatsoever. I, I started doing this thing on Indie Hackers. I don't know if you saw it, but we have a group called Show IH on Indie Hackers on the forum. And anybody who posts in Show IH can just basically show off something that they're working on that they think other Indie Hackers will find interesting or useful. And I've made a commitment that if somebody posts something cool that the community likes, I will bring that person onto the podcast and we'll talk about it. So that's like Show IH the group, and this is Show IH the episode, I guess. And I think you posted the coolest thing last month. You had a lot of uh, comments and discussion about your podcast, shit you don't learn in school. And I just kind of wanted to chat with you casually about what it is and why you started it. So maybe let's start there. Like, why should anyone start a podcast right now? Why did you start a podcast? There's obviously hundreds of thousands, if not millions of podcasts. It's really hard to get started. It's really hard to grow. It's hard to be consistent. Chances are you're just going to give up. So why, why start a podcast? Well, I want to say first that I love that you brought up all of those things, right? Like it's so hard to grow a podcast. It's, it's not an easy thing to commit to every single week or some people publish even more than that. But I think on the other side of that challenge is something unique that you don't always get with other content mediums. So like, let me just ask you a couple of questions, Cortland. How many podcasts do you listen to in your like suite of podcasts? It's probably like five or six that I go between. Maybe. Exactly. So most people listen to, I think the number is around six is the average. Now let me ask you how many newsletters you read at, you know, in a given year. <laughs> uh, I don't know, a few dozen that I'm subscribed to. I don't read them consistently, but you know, I peek at some. Exactly. So there's a lack of consistent interest and time spent with newsletters as compared to podcasts. And if you take that yep. to another level, let's talk about blogs as an example. How many blog articles from different blogs out there on the web do you think you'll read in a given year? Probably 100. Exactly. And so if you imagine that on a spectrum where on one end you're having these like really light touch experiences with people, often when you read a blog, you don't even know who wrote it, right? You Maybe you discovered it on Hacker News or something. So true. And so you have this light touch experience. You spend maybe five minutes with that person through the internet. Um, and then newsletters are maybe a little bit less of a light touch experience. You're subscribing to the person or their newsletter. Every time you read it, you're spending a couple minutes and you're maybe you're doing that every week. And you're doing that with, I think the most, or most people I've asked give us that number of a dozen or two dozen 
newsletters in a given year. Podcasts, you're spending an hour with the person often, right? So you really get to know them. You get to hear their nuanced takes on things. And you're only spending that time with like a very select number of people. And so I liken these different types of content to podcasting almost being like your best friends, right? The people that you're spending all your time with, you're really excited uh, to, to be around. Newsletters are more like, I don't know, like that friend of a friend that you sometimes see every right. so often. And then blogs are like those random people you meet at conferences once a year. So the reason I'm mentioning this is because depending on the goals of different creators, podcasts may actually be a terrible thing for them to launch, right? If they're trying to reach the masses or they're trying to bring in huge amounts of ad dollars, podcasts are, are not the way, at least in the short term. But if they are looking to have like deep trusting relationships with their audiences, similar to what you've built with Indie Hackers, then that's why podcasts can be the right move. And that's ultimately why I decided to create a podcast. I think you nailed it. Like that's exactly what you get from a podcast. And it's so deep to have somebody in your ear for an hour. Like you said, it's just like, you kind of feel like they're your friend. You feel like if you saw them on the street, it's like, this is a convert. This is a person I've been having conversations with for a year. Right. Except like <laughs> they have no idea who you are, but you know <laughs> right. everything about them because you've heard them. Uh, I think that's a great way to look at it. And I think it's, it kind of speaks to the fact that like not every channel is the same. And like you said, like it could be a bad option for certain people. Like I know a lot of people who are like, I've got a new product, I've got a new company, like I need to have a podcast, I need a blog, I need a newsletter, I need to be on Twitter. And it's like, number one, you can't do all of these things and do them well, unless you have a team probably, or you're just like literally full-time content creator, that's it. But number two, like probably some of those things aren't gonna be that helpful. And even if you like succeed at Twitter and build up this huge audience, it doesn't in any way align with sort of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that you're chasing, then like you're going the wrong way. And so podcasts are basically, if you really want people to build a deep connection with you, why do you want people to build a deep connection with you? I mean, like, you don't necessarily need that to happen. You already have other successful endeavors. Like, why Like, why does it matter? I think it's for that very reason. I've built a lot of other projects that give me these, like, fun flashes of attention, right? They'll trend on Product Hunt or something, or maybe someone will read an article of mine and they'll really love it. But then I don't have this lasting connection with people. And I want to create for the next several decades. Like that really is my intention. And that's also the reason that I continue to work full time. And so that everything that I create is just this passive thing that I'm, I only do when I'm interested in it. And um, I can do for a long, long period of time. And it's not, you know, dependent on my financial stability. And so if I'm planning this thing, right, to, to be invested in it for many, many years, if not decades, then I think forming these really strong bonds with people is the best way to do it, right? And it also gives me optionality because if I create a newsletter about something very specific and people get to know me as like Steph is the writer or Steph is the X, Y, or Z, which people tend to do with creators, then I'm almost like stuck in that lane. And so I think podcasting is a really neat way to almost like break yourself out of that. And you said people view you as like their friends and I want people to get to know me as not just Steph the writer or Steph the developer or whatever it might be, but just like Steph and buy into me and what I might create like 30 years from now. Right. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And I think you picked kind of like the perfect topic for your podcast to have that sort of like optionality and like general purview where you're not locked into something. So the shit you don't learn in school, the description, at least on the iTunes store, is formal schooling does a terrible job of preparing you to thrive as an adult. The shit you don't learn in school podcasts exists to make up for the societal failure. So it's to help you improve the quality of your personal and professional life. And like, that's broad. That could be, you could talk yeah. about literally <laughs> anything that you want on your show and get away with it. And no one's ever going to be like, oh, but Steph, you're veering away from the topic. You said. Like, it's anything. Like some of your episode titles are like, and we'll talk about some of these, like should billionaires exist and earning the trust of your team 
and what can happen in 300 years from now, right? And you're talking about casinos and Russian roulette with your life and technology that people, it's just literally anything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly why we structured it that way, because we didn't want to be really confined by a specific topic. And even hearing you read that description out loud, it sounds a lot more controversial than I think we meant it to be. But <laughs> I read it really the controversial is, episodes. <laughs> it really is just like you go through school for, you know, 15 to 20 years, at least in, in North America. And at the end of that, most people stop learning or at least stop learning in as aggressive of form as they were doing in school. And I think there are just endless topics that people can like really dive into that they would benefit from and help us have better discourse as well. Like some of the topics like should billionaires exist? Uh, I'm not seeing that topic talked about in too many forums in a way that's talking about both sides and talking about how we critically think about this and not just like these like really brash conversations that you see. And so that's that's why we created the podcast is because we were already having those conversations behind closed doors and we just right. kind of wanted to open that up. Honestly, I stopped learning like during school. Like, I didn't stop <laughs> learning after school. I stopped learning before I, I was ready to be done with school like my junior year of high school. And in college, I almost never went to class. And a lot of it was just like just easy to tell that most of the stuff I was learning, like I wasn't going to use because I was spending so much time on the internet and seeing like how people were making money and having an impact using different skills that I wasn't learning. So maybe this is off topic, but I'm just curious, like what do you think should be taught in schools? Like do you have opinions if you could control like sort of the high school curriculum or the college curriculum for like Americans? Like what is what is not getting into people's heads that should be? You know, it's so funny you asked this because I literally tweeted last night i i'm gonna pull this tweet up but it asks this exact question it says what's the one subject that you think schools should teach way more of and then also what about way less and so just reading through some of the responses and then i'll layer in what i think there's tons of responses around financial literacy there are some responses that don't even speak to a specific subject but they're more like we should stop teaching kids uh, memorization and grading and things like that and more so teaching them how to learn. I thought mm -hmm. one of the interesting responses that, that came up a couple times was um, like phys ed, that we should be investing way more in that and teaching people how to be fit and healthy and and to do that throughout the, you know, the, the rest of their lives. Um, yeah. Some other things were like philosophy or, you know, maybe some of the softer sciences, um, a lot around critical thinking. I kind of side with the the idea that, and, and this is due to the way that school needs to be done at scale, we focus far too much on teaching kids things that are graded. It's due to the fact that we need to grade people to understand how that how they're performing relative to their peers. But I just think through all the times when I just like optimized for acing a test, I got very, very good at that. But then five days right. later, I forgot everything that I had learned. And I you know, reflecting on just one thing in particular, it's kind of crazy when you think about it that uh, tests these days aren't open book. If you think about the society that we live in and how many resources are available online, if you really wanted to mimic people succeeding in, in the wider world, it would be testing them on their right. resourcefulness, not testing them on their ability to memorize something on the spot. Exactly, because real life is open book. There's no job you're gonna take where you know your boss is gonna tell you you're not allowed to look things up. Half the exactly. programmers I know have spent all their time on Google, Googling how to do some certain things because they've forgotten or they need to, like, and resourcefulness comes down to it. And I like the point you made about uh, not being graded to you because I take a lot of classes that, quite frankly, like now, like, I mean, I've taken lessons from chess coaches and all sorts of, like, tennis lessons. Like, no one's grading me. I'm just doing it because it's interesting and I go at my own pace. And I think there's 
like something relieving about not necessarily being assessed that way. But on the flip side, oh my God, is money like a, such a strong incentive for people <laughs> to do things? And like all of school just like comes down to money. It's like go to school, get good grades so you can get into a good college, so you can get a good GPA, so you can get a degree and you can get a job somewhere and then make money. And like if that is kind of the, like the thing everyone's chasing and in a way it sort of corrupts everything and makes it all about grades and it's like so many people are incentivized to just ace the time. I mean, I'm sure you're probably similar to me as a kid, right? I was just like, how do I get the highest SAT score? I was just like a school robot in a way, even though I hated it. And like it worked out, but like I didn't learn anything. <laughs> and a lot of other people didn't learn anything. We just memorized stuff, pumped and dumped, and then got good grades. Yeah, I mean, if you really reflect on it, what schools do, and I'm diminishing them to an extent, I actually, you know, I think schools obviously serve a really important purpose, but what they do is they train you to be a good citizen. And they train you to be a good citizen as, you know, the government or, you know, wider society views a good citizen. So what is that? That means that you probably, you know, are a nationalist. I mean, you you sing the national anthem, or at least we did in in our schools in Canada. You also, you know, you show up on time. You prepare for, as you mentioned, like a very specific type of career trajectory. And so it is interesting to just reflect, and there's obviously reasons why things are designed this way, but reflect on what schools really are optimized for versus, you know, perhaps the narrative that you hear schools are optimized yeah. for. What's a subject though? Like if you had to pick a subject that you really wish that had been like taught in schools that wasn't, because I've got like a whole list of like, okay, like, oh, man, I, in my adult life, like this, like, I did not have the skill growing up and no one taught it to me. And like, it was known human knowledge at the time. And just no one thought this would be like good to put in school. And it's, it's very frustrating. So I wonder like what, what's frustrating for you that you wish you were taught? So, I mean, I, I think one very simple one that you took in school later is just computer science. I think that should be like a given from the very, very early stages of school. And I hope that changes are being made within schools. I think one thing that was optional in my school system that I wish was mandatory was debate. Uh, I think one of the biggest problems in our society today is that we can't disagree in a friendly, productive way. And uh, I think that if people were really forced to learn how to debate other sides and, and go down that rabbit hole, I think we'd be in a much better place. I also think there's there's some more like strange classes you could say. I created a, a product uh, back in the day called Unoya, and it was all about untranslatable words. I think there should be classes like that in school where you learn like how cool would it be to learn about all these words that exist in other cultures and instead of being this nationalist, which not hating on, on nationalism, you actually were like, wow, it's so beautiful that this like this culture exists in Russia or that these people experience this phenomena in Japan. And so those are some of the things that come to mind. But totally curious uh, from your perspective, like what are some of those classes on that long list of yours? Yeah, yeah. First of all, I second like the sort of like debate classes. And for me, a lot of it just comes down to like, just like, I mean, as vague as it is, like critical thinking. Like I, if you give somebody you know, the controls to like a fighter jet. Say like, here, Steph, sit in this fighter jet. Go ahead and fly this. Like, you're immediately going to be like, I have no idea how to fly this. <laughs> I don't want to even start it up because I don't want to kill myself. Like, no, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to do this, right? Or if you give somebody like a very complex like math problem that like math professors would understand, but like the average person, everyone will just say like, I don't know math or like, I, didn't, I didn't do very well at math. I don't know what this means. But there's a bunch of topics where regardless of how well-trained or not you are in it, everyone kind of thinks they're good at it. <laughs> You know, it's like Finance. web design is one of them. Everyone <laughs> thinks they're good at web design. Everybody thinks they understand economics. Like everybody thinks yes. that they understand, uh, I guess, in a way, like the rationality and the reasons, reasoning that goes into like dissecting arguments and debate. 
And it's like, actually, this is kind of a skill, and some people are better or worse at it. Like, some people are more or less skeptical. Some people are more or less logical. And I think it would be good to sort of train people in these, I guess, techniques so that people can, number one, self-assess and say, you know what, actually, I got kind of an F in logic, so don't take my word for it when I'm trying to assess what this political candidate is saying, because I'm pretty easy to fool, right? Just, like, having that baseline as a society would be good. And then I think we live in sort of an increasingly uh, information-rich world, right? Like, you Anyone could, on any side of any topic, just go to www.imright.com, find whatever facts they think fit their narrative, and then just like say, oh, this is true, right? And like, there's all this confusion about what's true and what's not. And I think, you know, back in the day, it was like much harder for people, or much easier for people to, I guess, discern truth from fiction because there just weren't that many sources, you know? Or even if everyone believed the wrong thing, like everybody believed the same wrong thing because there's only like two sets of encyclopedias and like five TV stations. And so now I think that there should be something, to your point, more about like open book. How do you be resourceful? How do you assess the veracity of like information that you're coming by online? And that's not only just helpful for things like debate and understanding like which political candidates' speeches to believe, but also just doing your job. Like how do you figure out if like the information you got is like accurate? How do you go on Stack Overflow and figure out which answer to trust? You know, how do you figure out which vaccine to take? Like just practical choices in our lives. I think there's lots of clues as to what's credible and what's not. And it's kind of a shame that in a world with like so much information, we don't teach that. Absolutely. And one one thing to really drill down on there is one of the reasons that certain subjects aren't taught in schools is because there's no black and white. This is right. This is wrong. Right. So math is is taught in schools for many reasons, but also because it's easy to grade at scale. And so I, I think the education system, for obvious reasons, avoids teaching certain things that they can't grade. But I think it would be interesting for our education systems to have, yes, some classes that are heavily graded, but then also classes that are just pass-fail. And and I get this actually from, I spent a year in Sweden doing my, my degree there on exchange, and they had totally different grading systems. In fact, many of my classes were pass-fail. If they weren't pass-fail, it was fail three, four, or five right? So, so very basic grading. And then the craziest part to me was their exams and their projects. You could retake as many times as you needed, which I think, you know, when I first encountered that system, I was like, this makes no sense. Like, why would they design it this way? But really it was like, you know, you, you submit an essay and they say, pass, you know, this is good enough. This is sufficient. Or they say, actually, this is where you're missing out on things. Could you please improve this? And you're like working towards it. And I actually think that was kind of or at least I left the system being like, this is actually a pretty beautiful system where you're not teaching people to get a, per- a particular percentage grade, but to become sufficient at that thing. That makes a ton of sense. And like seeing that kind of stuff, like it just makes me wonder like, okay, when is that going to spread worldwide? When is that like better <laughs> system going to be adopted? And I think like with the internet, it's like, I wonder the same thing sometimes. Like I just saw, I forgot who it was. They were tweeting that like, hey, they almost no lo- they almost never watch Hollywood movies anymore. In fact, most of the content they watch is on YouTube. And that's not because anything magical changed overnight. It's because, like, YouTube just needed, like, a few decades in existence for people to, like, start getting good enough to, like, start making really good content. But, like, if you think about it, if you put, like, a video sharing website in the hands of billions of people, like, the best content should come from there because it's literally the whole world. And I think the same about education. Like, there's some educational startups called, like, OutSchool, for example, is a good one, where it's literally just a marketplace of classes. And I believe pretty much anybody can go submit a class to OutSchool. And uh, I think they have 140,000 online classes for kids ages 3 to 18. And then if you're like homeschooling your students, your kids, or even if you're not, you can kind of like pay for classes for them and just get the best classes in the world. 
So you can go down and see, okay, like what have like, what is the market determined to like the best classes that are actually taught by the best possible teacher online for the best subjects that aren't sort of created by like the school board that's stodgy and old and slow. And like, you can just kind of scroll down, you know, some of the most popular classes are like sign language for beginners and ah, number two, critical thinking and introduction to logical arguments are developing a growth mindset versus fixed mindset for teens. And so I'm just kind of waiting for the internet to like take over. I mean, I guess your podcast is a good example, right? The shit yeah. you don't learn in school is like you're doing it. Well, two really important points there. The ability for anyone to create content, it democratizes it in a way where you don't need just these large organizations dictating what people are viewing. And that's amazing because a large university, similar to a large newspaper, would never create a course on, you know, untranslatable words because there's not right. a big enough market for that or they don't think it's right. important enough within their 12 courses. But when you have 7 billion people creating things, like that may actually be important enough for one person to want to go create. And it can also be created very, very quickly. So mm-hmm. when you have the bloated system, you're creating new curricula, what, every couple of years? And by the time you create it, it's already outdated, right? And so yeah. that's another beautiful thing about this almost marketplace for ideas is that you can add to that marketplace in real time instead of waiting for something to like bubble its way up through yeah. academia. Yeah. And that's like the same phenomenon that basically enables indie hackers to exist like as a class yeah. of people. Right. Like if you have like a tiny town, you can't really put that like large variety of stores in the town because there's not enough people. Like you can't open like an anime store in a town with a hundred people in it because it's like, ah, there's like two anime fans. Like you're not <laughs> right. gonna make enough sales, right? You get to like a bigger town or like a huge city like New York City, you can have almost every store imaginable because there's millions of people in the vicinity who can come shop and some tiny percentage of them can be your customers. But on the internet, it's like, all right, there's 8 billion people who can be your customers. And now that means that there's a ridiculous number of tiny little crazy niche classes and stores and products and services and apps that people can build that just need to get like 0.00001% of people to use them. And then you're making, you know, $10,000 a month and you're an indie hacker and you're self-sufficient and that's good enough. So Yeah, exactly. It applies to all of the internet, including content creation, right? Like, as I mentioned with the newsletter, the New York Times just won't run certain stories because it doesn't make sense for them, or at least when they were right. a physical newspaper. But now today, you could write an article about some super niche thing, and you've got a market out there, most likely. Yeah. Okay, so now you're inspired. You're like, okay, I can create a podcast. People can have you know personal affinity with me, like no other medium that exists. Uh, and also, like, there's this infinite, you know, number of niches that I could fill, and essentially, it's just, like, a very optimistic, rosy picture, but also, <laughs> there's still the challenges of making a podcast, which is that most people quit, and most people quit, like, pretty fast into a podcast, which is, like, not to say that it's the wrong decision to quit, it's, like, maybe they discover it's not for them, but it's hard to keep going. Uh, I thought you did something really clever with your podcast, which is, like, the 30-day, 30-day challenge you and your co-host did, so describe that to me, like, what, what was the 30-day challenge for your podcast? Yeah, so it was really simple. It was exactly what it sounds like, 30 days where we we came to a decision, which is we want to start a podcast. But I've come to many decisions like this in the past. And like you said, five days later, I'm not at that same con- level of conviction. And so in this case, we said, why don't we test our conviction? Why don't we test our ability to do this as well? So we set you know, a 30-day challenge where every day we would record, edit, and produce an episode. And we did that for 30 days. If you go back and look in the archives, those episodes weren't amazing. I think we've definitely upped our game since then, but it was really a test for ourselves and less so for the audience to see, could we do this? And at the end of that challenge, 
did we even want to continue doing that? And by the end of that challenge, we had hit 200 listens per episode. So not huge, but you know, we had a listener base. And I think what was really nice about that is that at the end of that challenge, we had people being like, I, I really hope you continue. So it was also a little bit of validation that what we were doing, even though it wasn't super polished, was, you know, serving people or, or solving some problem for them. Yeah. So you ended up publishing all of these episodes, even though they were rough, huh? Yeah. It was so easy to just like do practice episodes and then not put them out. But then you're not really testing your actual skills and your actual commitment to the, the actual full process, huh? Exactly. Like we wanted to truly like go through what it would be like in real life to, to launch a podcast and do it every day. And it's really hard to also just have enough to say every day for 30 days. Mm-hmm. And so that's another thing that I would encourage people to do if they're thinking of launching a podcast or a newsletter or some form of content, like for the next 30 days, go write down all the things that you'd want to tell the world, like all the articles that you would write or all the podcast topics that you'd you'd launch and see how much you can come up with. Because I think a lot of yeah. people at a high level think they have a lot to say, but when it really comes down to brass tacks, <laughs> it's like... Nope. <laughs> I think one of the hardest things for starting anything new is just acknowledging that like you will be bad in the beginning. Maybe not bad compared to the average person, but definitely worse than you like imagine yourself to be, you know, and definitely worse than maybe your heroes or the people that you admire. And I, like, I have a friend who, or a friend of a friend who like want, who's wanted to learn to play the guitar forever. And like he imagines himself starting a band, but every time he picks up the guitar, he's like, I suck. <laughs> and the process of like practicing and realizing he sucks just like kind of casts him into despair. And he just gives up on it almost every time. And I have another friend who's like been talking about starting a podcast and she's having so much trouble getting over this like initial hurdle of like, I'm not that good. <laughs> I'm not that interesting. I'm like awkward. I stutter. Like I'm not like, and so she just doesn't want to, it's very discouraging. Like she stops. And so somehow you were able to like push, I don't know how you did it. You just pushed past that. And for 30 days, so like, hey, I'm not that great, but like we're going to keep recording and then publish it live. Like how do you get over that hump when you're not that good at something in the beginning uh, and just keep doing it and not get discouraged? You know, we talked about schools before and one of the things that I think schools miss is teaching people a love for learning. And I, I definitely left school without that and then have gained that in the last couple of years, honestly, through indie hacking. And so an example of learning something from scratch that was really hard for me at first was coding. And I went through that same arc, right, where at first I was like racking my brain and I was like, I'm never going to be able to do this. Right? Like, How does everyone else yeah. do this? And then with enough time, I was building my own apps and I was like, well, wow, oh my gosh, I don't know how I got here, but I, here I am. And I think I've done that enough in the last couple of years that when you know the arc, the same way that if, if you've climbed Everest once, I'm sure the second time's a lot easier. I'm, I no longer get as jaded or scared when I'm in that right. like trough, as, as people say. Right. And so going it's into podcasting. Like exposure therapy. Yeah. I was like, I've been here before. I know this feeling. And so it, that's why it was like, I think a little easier for me with podcasting relative to something like coding where that was maybe one of my first mm-hmm. attempts at learning something truly on truly from scratch on my own peter levels has this good analogy of just like entering a pool right and like if you've, if you've never swam before like you probably don't want to jump into the deep end of the pool right it makes much more sense to get in the shallow end where you're very unlikely to drown and then just sort of wade in get a few practice strokes in and then go deeper and deeper and it sounds like that's kind of what you've done with learning right this exposure therapy method of like okay but like learning to code is something that like you do in private. Like the vast majority of all people on earth do not see you when you're trying to learn how to code. So that's like maybe the shallow end of the pool. And then something like putting out a podcast is maybe the deep end of the pool where every single episode you put out, like 
people can listen to you. And in fact, you're trying to like advertise that and market it to people. And so it's like, if you're not doing a good job, like that's very public. There's a lot of, you know, embarrassment, shame, probably just hits to your pride that can be discouraging. And so like, it makes sense that like in your progression, you kind of went in that order where maybe some of the things you did were, I don't know, just like you had a little bit of a safer environment for yourself to try and fail and develop like a love of learning. Yeah, I, I, I think you could say I had some wins under my belt, which I know not everyone has, but it is important to view it that way, right? Like how do, how do you get a couple quick wins so that you see that certain things are possible and you're not as scared to like make yourself a little more vulnerable? And you mentioned, Peter, I think a great example of this at play is Peter has made, I think I remember him posting about this recently, 70 projects in the last couple of years or maybe 10 years since he's been a creator and only four have made any money. Another example of this is Josh Pigford, who he has this great page, joshpigford.com slash, I think it's projects or something like that. And he also has created dozens. I think it was like over 50 projects throughout the last couple of mm-hmm. years, of which many of them failed or sold for very, very small sums of money. The only one that was like a blowout success was uh, Bear Metrics, which he sold for a couple million dollars. Yeah. Um, I'm mentioning these because you only encounter other people's successes. So, you know, when we look at Peter, right. we're like, oh, Nomad List, Ramon, okay, great, he's making millions, but we didn't see the 60 plus other projects that he failed at. And so yeah. I think it's all about, yeah, jumping in that pool, as he says, and realizing that you will have failures. I know this is like super tropey, but like you're going to have failures. So just it's jump true. in the goddamn pool and, and go for it because <laughs> you're not going to get to the other side, right? If if you're never going to get in the pool in the first place. Totally agree. And I think, honestly, the best advice is very tropey. Like, the things that people say over and over and over again that we've all heard a million times, like, that's the best advice. And we end up, you know, chasing all, like, these, like, very novel, creative <laughs> pieces of advice. And we're not even following, like, the basic stuff, right? Yeah. And, like, this tweet from Peter Levels, like, I talked to him about this on the, on the show last month. I'll read it out loud here. He said, only four out of 70-plus projects I ever did made money and grew which means that greater than 95% of everything I ever did failed. My hit rate is only about 5%, so ship more. And then he posted a little screenshot of a text file where he's got, here's the projects that made money and grew, and it's four lines. And then just to like actually see what it looks like to see like 70 other projects, it's insane, right? And like seeing right. that's so inspirational because it's like you then you're like, can calm down. You're like, okay, I'm not a failure. But it's the Instagram effect, right? You go on Instagram, all you see is like hot models with their banging bods, having fun and like, you know, with a bunch of other attractive people by the pool. And you're like, dang, I suck. (laughs) My life's not that fun. (laughs) You go on Twitter, it's kind of the same thing. All you see is like super smart people posting about their revenue numbers and how successful they are. And you don't necessarily see the losses. And what's funny about that is you kind of actually do sometimes. Like if you follow Peter Levels, every one of these projects that failed, he was out there, like he built that sort of exposure therapy, that muscle, right, where he's like willing to learn and publicly fail. So he actually tweets about all these projects that failed. He's super jazzed about everyone. He has a huge audience of like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers. And when it something flops, he like just stops talking about it. And then you kind of forget about it. And then everybody remembers the things that succeeded and nobody remembers all the things that flopped. Exactly. I think, I don't know if there's a reason that our brains work this way, but yeah, you only remember the things that you have an emotional attachment to. And I don't have an emotional attachment to Peter failing or some other creator failing. I have an emotional attachment to someone else succeeding, partially maybe because I'm excited for them, but also, you know, if we're all going to be honest with ourselves, because I'm a little bit jealous. When I see someone making millions a year, I'm like, damn, I want that. And so that cements in my brain. And so that's, I think, why you probably remember a lot of other people's successes 
and not their failures, which is important because if you're worried about failing, you don't really have to worry about people sticking with you and like remembering, right. oh, remember that time that Steph launched that really <laughs> shitty podcast, right? Um, and so I, I think I think that's important as well, where it's like it's less yeah. about avoiding the failures. It's more about finding the successes, which inevitably require a lot of failures. Totally. Totally. And I think when it comes to like all these posts and especially like in the indie hacker community, like a lot of what people are emotionally attached to that helps them remember things is just inspiration, like things that actually cause you to change your own behavior and your life. And there's a psychologist, his name is BJ Fogg. He's a great model for like behavior. Like what gets someone to actually take action? And he says it's motivation times ability times trigger. So motivation is like seeing something that somebody else has that you're like, I want that, right? Seeing like Peter Levels like succeed with a project and then be like, oh, I'm making a million dollars a year from one of four projects. You're like, okay, that sounds awesome. There's a the motivation. I also want to make a million dollars a year. Then ability, like, can I do this? Is there something fundamentally different about this person? And I think like people who are inspirational tend to be very human. And so like maybe the fact that he's posting all of his failures makes it seem more human. Like, oh, this guy failed like 95% of the time. I can fail 95% of the time too. And then trigger, which is like the call to action, like the sort of starting point. And once you get all three of those things, like you get started on something. And so uh, it's funny, a lot of people like often ask like, why don't you start an indie hackers but for failure stories? And like, this is the reason why I don't. Because <laughs> it's not that inspirational to like, to see a bunch of people who failed. It's more inspirational see people who succeeded and then to hear about all of the failures that they went through to get there. I mean, we, I wasn't a part of this, but the hustle, I think did something around failures a long time ago and it didn't work out for that very reason because I think people often will suggest, oh, there should be this company that talks about all the failures in the industry because they mm -hmm. think if these stories are, are out there, it will stop other people from making these same mistakes. And that's just not true. Nope. Like the road to success <laughs> is paved with failures. So reading about them, maybe we'll stop a couple of them, but ultimately it's like, you got to keep failing in order to hit that success. And so your point is, I think, spot on. You want to share those successes so you have that emotional connection of where you want to go and who you're inspired by and focus on that because that's also going to be much more sustainable, right? That that emotion will drag you for years. The failure emotion will, it, it's so transient, right? It's, it's going to yeah. disappear so quickly. One of my heroes, Charlie Munger, is like super big on what he calls elementary worldly wisdom, a lot of which he just lifted from Ben Franklin. But he's so big on this idea of like, like one of the biggest mistakes that we all make is not learning from other people's mistakes, which is exactly what you're saying. Like very rarely do we say we're not going to make any mistakes because we've just read about everyone else's. Like we just don't read those stories and then we just go out and make those mistakes ourselves. But he has a, a huge principle where he's like, what's his quote? He says, I like, I like people who admit that they're complete stupid horses asses. I know that I'll <laughs> perform better if I rub my nose in my own mistakes. This is a wonderful trick to learn. So we kind of have this like built-in reflex of like, I made a mistake, let's just pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> let's not tell anybody about it. Let's just move on. But like, that's not the best way to learn from your mistakes. It's not the best way to learn from other people's mistakes. So I, I kind of agree with him, but uh, the reality is that like people don't, <laughs> people don't do that. And so the failure websites, they don't, they don't work. Yeah, I think Charlie Munger is probably a little wiser than the average person. Yeah, I just saw he was on, uh, he was on the news the other day. Dude is 98 years old. Oh who my don't goodness. know who Charlie Munger is. He is Warren Buffett's business partner. He's kind of like the guy behind the scenes. So he's a billionaire, has been for decades. And he's 98 years old, doing what he loves. He was giving an interview. I think he was hating on cryptocurrency. Dude's about to turn 99. <laughs> <But> hopefully <laughs> I can be... He's doing something right. <laughs> well, I mean, we had an episode on 
tech that people have feared or like what's coming, another one on what's coming in 300 years. And I guarantee that when I'm 99 or the equivalent, I'm going to be hating on some technology <laughs> that all the young people are like making fun right. of me for. And so I don't judge Charlie. He's obviously done some pretty <laughs> incredible things. So, and we're yeah. all going to be in that same bucket. So let's talk about like the practicalities of growing a podcast. Cause it's not easy to like grow it. Like, okay, well you get over the hurdle of, uh, you know, you don't care if you suck. You don't care if you knew you're new, you do 30 episodes in 30 days, which is, I think is super smart. You could do that challenge for anything. Uh, and then you're like, okay, great. We've got 200 subscribers per episode. How do you actually get on people's radar? Because like, as you mentioned at the top of the, the top of the talk, there's not that many tools in the podcasting world. Like there aren't really podcast search engines that people use very much. Like there's no video. There's not very many analytics. Uh, it's very difficult to recommend. It's hard to even advertise podcast episodes on Twitter sometimes. Uh, so how do you how do you get to the point where I think you're like upwards of like 15,000 downloads a month now and thousands of downloads per episode. So you've come a long way from like zero <laughs> downloads an episode. How did you get that? How did you get there? The infrastructure is so bad from discoverability to engagement, but also analytics. Like that is that is the most important thing that uh, any growth marketer will utilize in, in their toolbox, right? Whether it's video or written content. But with podcasting, the analytics are so bad, you truly, for the most part, can't really tell where people are coming from. And therefore, all of the experiments that you can run aren't really that helpful because you don't know which ones were successful. So I'll just say that I think we're around 10 years behind written content in terms of the tooling. And so it's coming and it's being built. And, you know, there was even yesterday that Spotify acquisition of Chartable and Pod Sites. And so things are happening, but I think we are... 10 years behind. Um, so with that said, some of the things that have actually worked for us, this won't be this won't be revolutionary for anyone, but the first is to use whatever channels you do have traffic from, right? So in my case, it was Twitter. That's where I'd built up an audience. Instead of trying to drive your audience on your podcast, I would actually encourage people to continue growing the other audiences they have where they do have the right analytics or they do have the right discoverability. Um, so again, for me, that was Twitter. And then developing a growth strategy that's native to that platform. But, and what I mean by that is what I see a lot of people do on Twitter is they'll launch an episode and then they'll, you know, write a little post being like, hey, everyone, new episodes up. Right. And no one cares that you have a new episode. Like that, that's the reality, right? What they care <laughs> is what you're offering them, right? Like, what are you going to teach right. me? Or like, what, if, you know, what am I going to learn? Or what's this controversial thing that uh, happened on it? And so what I found worked really well through testing on Twitter because I knew I wanted to use this traffic, but I didn't know how, was tweeting about the topic that I was going to write about first. And this is also like a, a vetting mechanism, right? Like, do people engage with this? Is it something that people are interested in? And then letting that tweet blow up. So for example, the first tweet I did this with was a, was commentary on the 40-hour work week. Um, and that tweet ended up getting 10,000 likes. And then I basically appended to that another tweet that said, we just recorded an episode on this podcast. We talk about X, Y, or Z. And that tweet, again, this is the first time I tried it, brought in like a thousand downloads to that episode alone. Um, and so I've played around with that a lot. I've also played around with clips, right? Because they can grab attention in a way that a one hour episode can't because that's, that's just like asking too much from a person. And so those are some of the things that have worked really well for us. I can go through some other growth tactics if you want, but I would say that the very simple advice is grow other channels, invest in those, and then find a way to convert those channels to 
your podcast in a channel Agreed. native way. Agreed. Same thing I did with Indie Hackers. Indie Hackers is already like a very popular blog and newsletter well before there was a podcast. And the podcast would have zero listeners if I wasn't like pushing it out to a newsletter that already had a lot of subscribers. And it's way easier to grow a newsletter from scratch or a Twitter account from scratch or a blog from scratch than it is to grow a podcast from scratch because of exactly what you're saying. Like there's just no analytics. It's not that many channels. It's just difficult. It's like hard to... If somebody shares like a link to a funny like Instagram post or TikTok post or a blog post to me, like I can just click it and read it. If somebody shares like a link to a podcast to me, like I'm not going to listen. First of all, I'm going to be upset at you because I don't want my friends recommending like an <laughs> hour burden unless it's like really, really good. And second, it's going to take me like days or weeks to get to it. And they're going to be pestering me to look like it's just not that easy to share that way. And so uh, I really love the advice to like start somewhere else. And like, yeah. again, you're, like, you're not a like you're not a novice on Twitter. Like I'm on your Twitter account right now. Steph Smith. 10,600 tweets. Oh, God. <laughs> You've been, <on> <laughs> been on Twitter for a long time, you know? Uh, and, like, I think you build up, like, some skills after doing that, and you figure out, okay, this is my channel. I can use what's good here. And then I love how you kind of later on come in and then add the link to your podcast after you already have a popular tweet. That's super smart. We talked about the framework that I mentioned before of, like, podcasts being your best friends. Mm-hmm. And you also use the term burden, right? Like a podcast episode is an hour long. And I think if you really consider what you're asking someone to do, which is either to like spend an hour with you or like listen to you every single week for a long period of time, the friction to get someone to do that is so immense that Mm -hmm. that's exactly why it's hard to grow a podcast. And if you truly understand that and internalize that, you should realize that podcast growth should be slow, right? Like not everyone's going to want to be your best friend initially and so if you right. work your way back i'm a marketer so i think in funnels right build up the top of your funnel which should not be podcasts some people view podcasts as a top of the funnel channel it's not it's mm-hmm. bottom of the funnel when people are bought into you and listening to you very very frequently and so right. you could repurpose that as like why would you expect someone to want to be your best friend immediately you wouldn't right and so you Makes would want to no like yeah. meet them at a conference and then go for coffee and then hang out with in a group setting and then eventually they're like, okay, yeah, let's hang out like every day, just me and you. And the same thing is true with content. Like don't expect people to take that leap. So help them, whether it's through clips, whether it's through growing your other channels um, before you're asking them to listen to an hour of your voice. Yeah. And I think what helps you feel better in that process is just like understanding how much more valuable a podcast listener is than somebody on another medium. Like I would rather have 10 podcast listeners than a hundred Twitter followers any day, any day, easy, right? So the numbers absolutely might not be as big, but you can kind of sort of pat yourself on the back much harder for smaller podcast numbers because these are people who have much, they're just much more devoted to you. They're much more bought in. I wonder like how, how far you want to get with your podcast. Cause I looked up some numbers just to try to see like, okay, what, like what is a good podcast? The average podcast has like 27 listens per episode. <laughs> yeah. Cause there's millions that. of podcasts. The top 1%, you're in know, the top 1% of podcasts. If you have just under 3,200 listens per episode which is a lot, but it's like not that much. It's not undoable. I think you're like basically there. Uh, And then you have like, you know, the very most popular podcast, like Joe Rogan's, which is like 7 million downloads for some episodes. So it's like, there's a huge, huge range there. Uh, Where do you want to get with your podcast? Like what numbers do you consider to be successful? So we have a goal this year of getting to 50,000 downloads per month. So that's not per episode. But if you're talking like way into the future, I don't expect to ever be Joe Rogan. Certainly not, but I would love to, if I could one day get my podcast to 50,000 downloads per episode, what I think is so 
incredible about this, and it's totally an arbitrary number, is if you think about the physical equivalence of these things, like right now we are at around like 3,000 per episode, and that's like a really big keynote at a huge conference, right? 50,000 is Yankee Stadium. Like that's that's so cool that if I yeah, could actually have a podcast at that scale, which obviously I do not currently, that I'd be reaching that many people who are invested in hearing from me, listening to my ideas, and also just like we're learning together. And so that's that's kind of like the pie in the sky goal in the future. Um, but I'd be fine with, you know, even 10,000 downloads per episode because I, again, if you compare it to physical equivalence, it's just mind blowing how many people you're reaching on the internet. Yeah, exactly. I just looked up Andy Hacker's stats. And like our biggest months are like around 140,000 downloads. And I never really think of it in terms of like the physical <laughs> stadium size, but I say, yeah, right now you're talking to 140,000, well, maybe not that many people, but talking to like tens of thousands of people, 15,000, I think per episode. And so like that reach is immense. That means if you go somewhere on earth, it's not that unlikely that somebody will have heard your voice and heard what you had to say. And not only like heard it, but like heard it for an hour <laughs> in yeah. depth in person. Like it's just very, it's very cool. What about you though, Cortland? Like you have this podcast, you said it's around 15,000 per episode. Uh-huh. Is it something that you actively want to grow? Do you have growth metrics or milestones? <laughs> I don't think about growing the podcast at all nowadays. It would be nice for it to grow. Okay, so let me let me let me walk that back. Mostly I do the podcast because it's very good for the branding for indie hackers and because I find it fun to do. And there are times where I stop finding it fun to do and then I, I quickly course correct. I'm like, oh, this is not fun, right? It's it's fun when I talk to people like you. Like we're friends. Like we have, we have, like play chess, you know. Sometimes yes, it's like, which it's we fun should to get have a casual. To. We should get back to. It's fun to have casual conversations with people that I know are like comfortable on the mic and we can discuss different things like we're real people. And then I don't even pay attention to the fact that like anybody's going to be listening to it. Like I just don't care. And I think that's cool. And I also think that like that ends up being what leads to sort of organic growth for me because I think the episodes are a little bit less repetitive, a little bit more free flowing and a little bit more connected to topics that people care about. Whereas I think when I get into like super focused mode, like I'm only interviewing founders about their story from start to finish, like those episodes are really good. And people love them, but like you get tired after hearing like 10 or 15 of them. Like you yes. don't necessarily need to hear 200 founder stories before you're like, I get it because there's a lot of similarities, et cetera. And so for me, I focus more on growing the website and much less on growing the podcast. Like I don't even, I don't even do the bare minimum of tweeting out most podcast episodes. I think that makes sense because like I said, growing a pod directly is just, it's not going to happen. You want to grow those other channels. But I think one, one really interesting concept I've come around to is the fact that if we take the same idea that your podcasts are the equivalent of your best friends, I've realized that the entertainment value in podcasts is much more important. And that's why I have the same, I find the same thing when I listen to podcasts that are purely intellectual. At first, I'm like super stoked to listen to them. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is gold. And then by the third episode, I'm like, I just, I can't do this anymore. And it's like, imagine if, if you had a friend who was like the smartest person in the world, but just like had no sense of humor or had no like other features to them. <laughs> Would you want to spend all your time with them? No, it's, it gets tiring. Yeah. And so I, I've reflected on this and I, I think I think the reason that I listen to specific pods today is yes, they offer some educational value, but I just like the people. I just like listening to right. them. I find it fun. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. So like the times where I have like sat down and analyzed like word of mouth podcast growth, like a lot of it comes down to retention. 
ultimately, like your show is not going to grow if every time somebody listens to it, <laughs> they churn like, oh, that was cool, but I'm not coming back, right? So you need to retain your listeners. And what retains most people is exactly what you're saying, the entertainment value, knowing that they like the person, they enjoy the content. And if you look at like the podcast stats, like the types of podcasts that are the most popular, 22% of podcasts are comedy, uh, 21% are news, 18% are true crime. So people really like hearing stories about other people being murdered. Uh, and then 17% of sports. And the rest is just like a long tail. And so out of those four categories, like three out of those four are just pure entertainment. Just like make me laugh, right? Make me squirm, you know, make me excited. And then 21% is news, which is like very useful, but it changes every single day. Like the news is not, the, like by definition, the news is new, right? And so like those two things are like very good for retaining listeners. And I think people also want to hear the news delivered by people they like. And so ultimately, if you want to grow, you kind of got to do both of those things. Yeah, exactly. I think even podcasts that I listen to that would be framed as entrepreneur podcasts, I actually don't listen to them because I'm looking for these lessons. I'm just like, I like hearing these people's voices. I like hearing their jokes. I like hearing them make fun of each other. And so, yeah, I think that's something that's lost a lot of the time because when people go to start a podcast they're like it's time for me to start a podcast as you said earlier in in the episode and they they go to like the most default thing which is like i'm going to interview some founders or i'm going to interview people in my space and it's going to be these 45 minute episodes and we're going to jump onto a zoom and we have no rapport but i have really good questions yeah and it's like that doesn't work like <laughs> people don't want to <laughs> listen to that uh for hours of, of their week and so yeah I, I think pods are a different beast when it comes to entertainment as it compares to something like a newsletter totally well i hope people who listen to this uh tune into your podcast it's called the shit you don't learn in school uh i want to end by just asking you to give a piece of advice to everybody and i'm going to sort of break my tradition i'm going to also give a piece of podcast advice to people so my uh piece of advice is uh, I think everybody should attempt to do a podcast and not necessarily a whole show, but just record something. So get a mic that sounds good, borrow a mic from a friend, sit down with a family member or another friend and just impromptu record yourselves having a conversation and just save it. Because I think the experience of like hearing your voice and like radio quality audio and having like this conversation between you and someone you already have rapport with is just priceless. I've done it with uh, people who are close to me in my life and it's been super uh, meaningful. And for those things, you don't care about the metrics. You don't care about the numbers. You just care about having a good conversation. And that ultimately is what leads to good podcasts anyway. So I would recommend anyone who wants to start a podcast, just do something like that and see how you like it. Steph, what's your advice for people who are considering podcasting? I think your piece of advice is, is really important and ties into mine, which is that I think a lot of people, when they think of a podcast, they're thinking of these business metrics or they're thinking of getting to a certain size. And sure, that's important. But as we talked about, the infrastructure makes that really hard. And so if you're starting a podcast, you should be in it for the long term. But I also think there is so much room for people to be way more creative with their podcasts. So as I just mentioned, most podcasts, at least the ones that I have seen, are interview style um, and they're talking to a person who who is apparently an expert in a space but if you think of like the different types of youtube videos out there there's people who vlog there's people who do product reviews there's people who literally just like hang out with their friends and film it and i think there should be more of that in podcasting and there's not i think a lot of people look to the charts for guidance as to what they should do with a podcast and i think one really important thing to keep in mind is the charts are the way they are because podcasts have not great infrastructure. So if you actually go just right. Google top podcast 2021, you'll get a list. And if you go down that list, I can almost guarantee that 
pretty much every podcast on there either had a huge audience of their own, so someone like Michelle Obama, or they're part of a large network, right? So they, they're part of NPR or iHeart or something like that. And so those podcasts aren't the top podcasts necessarily because they're the best podcasts, but because mm-hmm. they had the reach. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because if you then accept that, you can maybe have a little more freedom of like, I don't need to replicate what right. is at the top because it's not necessarily the best. It's just what had access to distribution. So I would encourage people to just break the norms of podcasts and rethink like what can be done on a podcast because I think it's it's a lot of the same thing and it doesn't have to be that way. It is. Stop copying indie hackers. Start your own <laughs> podcast, folks. <laughs> Steph Smith, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you tell people where they can go to find you, where, where you are on Twitter, your blog, your podcast, et cetera? Yeah. Um, I should say, Cortland, like this was actually, I know this is like so corny, but this was kind of a dream because I started out as an indie hacker before all these projects. Um, some people think of me as a writer or other things today, but like I started my audience as an indie hacker on indie hackers listening to the indie hackers podcast. So it's, it's kind of cool and full circle, but um, yeah, my projects are all at stephsmith.io. That's my website. So you can find anything there. The podcast that we've talked about would love if people listened. It's called the shit you don't learn in school and you can find it at listen and learn.co. And uh, I'm most active on Twitter. So if anyone has any questions, they want to hear more nitty gritty podcast growth tactics you can reach out to me steph smith io is my handle and the final thing i'll say is just because we were talking about it so much is my book doing content right has a bonus podcast chapter that's coming out in the next month or so so if you want to check that out we can probably throw like a discount code in the show notes or something like that i love that it's a cool thing about internet books is you can just keep adding to them as you learn more stuff exactly very cool well thanks steph i'm glad you uh completed i guess like the the full sort of indie hacker circle of beginning to be an indie hacker and then eventually <laughs> coming out of the podcast. Uh, I'll have you on more often. Thanks again for coming on. Yeah, definitely. Whenever you want me on, I'm game. Mm-hmm.